Welcome to Women, Conscription and War, a podcast series focused on the actions, motivations and experiences of Melbourne women in the anti-Vietnam War and anti-conscription protests between 1965 and 1972. In case you haven't listened to the introduction to this project and where I give some history of the Vietnam War and conscription in Australia, a few things to keep in mind. First, this is in no way an attack on Vietnam veterans. I am the daughter of one myself. This is filling a gap, not opposing or challenging. Second, I don't necessarily agree with everything my interviewees say, so don't get angry at me for reporting their views. Third, I don't always give the name of the person who's speaking when I use excerpts from interviews. They're always credited on the website, which you'll find at womenconscriptionwar.com. You'll also find complete footnotes for the other work that I've used. Lastly, please note that I have edited these interviews for use in the podcast for clarity and to really hone in on the relevant ideas. This episode is all about La Trobe University. You'll find an episode about the University of Melbourne and two about the Monash University in your feed and on my website. So uh, La Trobe Uni was organising this march along Waterdale Road, which came to be known as the Waterdale Road Massacre because the police wailed into the crowd and bashed people brutally. La Trobe University opened its lecture halls to students in 1967, becoming the third university in Victoria. It started with 557 students and grew rapidly from there, with around 3,000 students by 1971. It had politically passionate students right from the start, although, as with all of the universities, it's hard to tell just how widespread an interest in politics actually was amongst the student body. But it's without doubt that at least some students were passionate and committed when it came to protesting against the Vietnam War, and for the same variety of reasons as in other contexts. Indeed, three La Trobe students spent what could be described as significant periods of time in jail for their protests. Barry York, Brian Poehler and Fergus Robinson spent time, ranging from six weeks to four months, in Pentridge Prison in 1972. They were jailed after going back onto the university campus, despite a Supreme Court injunction against them doing just that. I'll put a link in the show notes to an article by Barry York explaining the background to their incarceration. The range of activities that occurred at La Trobe were as varied as you would find elsewhere. I've had the opportunity to speak to four women who attended La Trobe University and were involved in these activities. Deborah Towns, Fiona Lindsay, Jan Muller and Jane Stewart. Deborah and Jan were born in 1949 while Fiona and Jane were born a year later. Well, I used to join all sorts of things. I've always been a joiner, okay, and out there in the community doing things, even as a young person back in Geelong because of girl guides, who knows what. And um, anything that was going, um, I joined things. And I guess I, and there was pamphlets everywhere. There was pamphlets against the war everywhere. There was different groups. I think there were so many different groups. There were Marxist groups and 
I think SDS, Students for Democratic Society. There was the, uh, I think it was NUAUS, National University of Australia. There were so many organisations and you could have joined any one of those. I probably joined, um, can't remember, I probably joined up with one of them, I can't remember, but I probably ended up joining a lot of them. I used to just go to their meetings with the people who I lived in college to start with. So I guess I went along to meetings with the other college women who I'd made friends with. And from then on, it was just the campus just seemed very much dominated. So, yeah, so I, I just would have signed up. I would have gone to meetings and, and um, that was it. And as I said, even in lectures and so on, it, it was just people would just march in with those loud howler things and say, you know, we're going on strike or we're occupying the admin office or something and we'd all just down our pens as you did in those days and off we were. So when you got to mm. La Trobe, mm. did you go looking for political groups oh, yes, deliberately or did you kind of fall into it because of the people you were with? Well, you just did. <laughs> it was just... It was just there in it was the just in there. And you just joined those activities. You know, you just were part of them. Probably the most public occasions of protest coming out of Latrobe specifically are what became known as the Waterdale Road Marches. There were three marches in total in September 1970. According to an article written by Barry York for the Museum of Democracy at Old Parliament House website, there were 70 protesters at the first protest on the 11th of September 1970. It followed a suburban street in West Heidelberg from the La Trobe campus to the local shopping centre. The second march had about 400 people involved on the 16th of September and went from Northland's shopping centre back to the campus. The third march, which occurred on September the 23rd, also walked towards the campus, and this time involved about 800 people. Sometimes the first of these marches gets called the Waterdale Road Massacre because of the police violence that occurred, which in Australia in 1970 was quite unheard of, at least directed towards university students. It did not, thankfully, actually involve anyone being killed. Were you involved with oh, what had become known as the Waterdale oh, Road absolutely. massacre or yes, events? Absolutely. Yeah. I think was there three attempts? I think yeah. two marching out of Latrobe and one, one marching, marching back. back. Were you yeah. involved in all three of them? Yeah. Yeah. What, what was it like? Oh, look, it's funny, you know. I don't. I couldn't. I, in memory, I couldn't distinguish one from another. Mm. Well, they in within a, a couple of weeks, mm. aren't they? They're very close mm. together, yeah. I mean, I look at the photos and, yeah, I mean, we were all, everyone was there. And you know, the, the police were just these walls of uniforms in front mm. of us. And they did have their batons out and they were hitting people. Yeah. It was chaotic, really. Quite chaotic. Because I'm sure we didn't know it. We, there were marshals and so on, hmm. um, but nobody was really, I suppose, terribly experienced or about what to do or how to, how to manage the situation. Well, that sort of thing had never really happened even in Australia at no, all, had it? No, mm. no, no. It had all been in Europe or in America. 
This violence Fiona mentions from the police is pretty well documented and not just by the so-called radicals. Students involved in both first and second marches reported being attacked by police with fists and batons. In a recent article, Barry York, the radical student activist from the time, quotes the then university chaplain who had attended the second march as an independent observer. The chaplain, in 1970, wrote a letter to a newspaper to express his, quote, disgust at the behaviour of the police. I was terrified, terrified. We were so naive, it never occurred to us that we thought the police would sort of keep their cars away, I think. Well, I did. And, and so when they started bashing people up with batons, it was, it was a shock. That was a real awakening. And the girl who was hit, she was one, you know, she was quite an aggressive girl, but she was only shouting and, you know, rah, 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 you know. I, I mean, I don't know, she might have hit a cop. I wasn't next to her. But she she did get her arm broken or her wrist broken, smashed with a baton. I don't remember what happened to the boys, but um, that was quite radicalising. The, well, the famous thing was the Waterdale Road march, which you've probably heard from other people. We Waterdale Road is this great big long road because the area around us is Heidelberg, which Heidelberg West, which is a big housing commission area, but famous again because it was the Olympic Village. Part of it was the Olympic Village, and Waterdale Road was a lot of factories, and um, there was a police station along there. The police would, you know, follow us and chase us and hit some students and all this sort of thing, and then. If we got to, then we'd try and go to Northland, but uh, we didn't get much support from the local residents, from what I recall. And uh, similarly, when we marched in the city, we didn't seem to get much support from people when we were marching in the city. As you know, all of a sudden, 100,000 people sat down in Burke Street, which is, you know, one of the most amazing things to have experienced, as you can imagine. But um, yeah, it was sort of like where there was a lot of booing and yelling and why weren't we, you know, get a job and all this sort of stuff. But the police the police were very vicious around Waterdale Road. As I said, the Waterdale Road marches were famous. Uh, I just, you know, I just remember the Waterdale Road thing and people like Barry York and Brian Poller, Fergus Robinson, um, was another bloke, Demos Cruz Cross. There was um, various names. Andrew Giles Peters, who's unfortunately passed away. He was, um, so all these people, I don't know if they were picked out or, or whatever, but some of those people were, you know, quite viciously uh, treated by the police. And I remember my boyfriend at the time, he used to say, look at these middle-class students being beaten up by police. So it was all this sort of behaviour and witnessing things that, you know, coming from Geelong and, as I said, going to teachers' college and wearing, you know, having this sort of sleepy hollow sort of life and being thrown into this storm, I suppose you'd call it, or something, the Waterdale Road marches became this, this thing that we, we were determined to keep on doing this and, you know, keeping our presence there. And I think I mentioned too, I, we understood that the police, state police couldn't get into the campus. So you'd be all ringed around the campus and the police would be on the other side and Yes, I just remember ringing the ring of students around <laughs> the Trobe University campus because it's circular and the police on the other side and we'd be jeering at them. And so it was just, you know, it was just a, an unusual, <laughs> unusual thing, you know, and then two years later I'm in a primary school classroom. <laughs> I, I've always thought of that juxtaposition. 
those innocent little children, and I used to think, what on earth would their parents have thought if they knew what I was doing two years earlier? So uh, La Trobe Uni was organising this march along Waterdale Road, which came to be known as the Waterdale Road Massacre because the police wailed into the crowd and bashed people brutally. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd been at work. I knew about the action. It was starting around 2 o'clock or something like that. And so the minute that school finished, I leapt in the car and took off for the uni and got there in time for one of the blokes with blood all over his face to call out, don't go down there, Jan, it's a bloodbath. And there were all these students coming back, running back from where they'd been bashed, and a number got arrested, um, running back onto the campus, which they believed was a safe haven, which in those days was to a degree a safe Mm -hmm. haven. So there I am in my little um, moke, a little red moke. So I'm parked in the driveway into the uni, which was the extension of Waterdale Road, and um, students were gathering and the cops were gathering on the other side of the road. There was a bit of a sort of a standoff. And someone threw some rocks towards the police cars, which gave them the excuse to come chasing. And I'm in my car, you see. Mm-hmm. And this is all paddocks. This was all open paddocks in those days. Yeah. And the cops started running after students, and police start cars started driving at students. And I thought, oh, shit. And then I saw one of my friends running with a cop on his tail. So I started the engine and drove across the paddock and drove between the copper and the student, which gave the student a few extra metres to put some distance between him and the cop. Anyway, the cop continued to chase him, realised that he'd got away, came back to me and said, okay, you'll do, reached in and grabbed the keys and arrested me. And this is where the interesting start part begins. I thought, okay, it's my time. I've never been arrested before. Here it comes. He goes to throw me in the paddy wagon, which they did, but they couldn't find the padlock for the paddy wagon. So hauled me out of that and put me into a police car. Two coppers, one either side of me and two coppers in the front. And off we drive to Heidelberg Police Station. And the copper in the front, the sergeant, says, so what have you got her for? And he said, what was it, obstruction? Obstruction or something. And the copper in the front says, throw the book at her. Resisting arrest. Uh, interfering with police, blah, 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 blah. And I thought he was just saying that to intimidate me. And assault with a weapon to wit a car. And I thought, assault with a weapon? I didn't go anywhere near the copper. I drove between him and his quarry. Uh, So I just thought that they were kidding, you know, just to intimidate me. And I thought, yeah, I'm not going to be intimidated. Here we go. Got to the police station. I knew the drill, name, that's it, no address, you know, make them work for them. (laughs) (laughs) So I gave my name, they strip searched me and I said, why are you strip searching me? 
uh, oh, well, you might have a weapon concealed. I'm thinking, yeah, right. So anyway, they kept me for hours and hours and hours. And because I was not giving a name um, and demanding my one phone call, eventually they relented and gave me my one phone call. And I phoned a solicitor and he said, I'll be right there uh, as quick as I can. And I knew he had a fair way to travel, so it was another hour and a half. I knew when he arrived because I heard him going crook at them. Why have you kept this woman here for so long? He really gave it to them. Anyway, off the record, I'd refused to make a statement, so they actually verbaled me. They wrote up a statement, but I hadn't signed it. And I suppose it's so long ago, no one's going to get into trouble for this. But um, when my solicitor came in and was dressing down these coppers for having held me there for so many hours and not allowing me to make my phone call and all of that sort of stuff, he was reading the riot act to them. I um, ninjaed the statement that they'd put in the typewriter, still was sitting in the typewriter, and I took it. (laughs) So... Then there was all hell to pay when they realised a few days later (laughs) that the statement had vanished (laughs) and they accused the solicitor of taking it. (laughs) He got out of it, though. To cut a long story short, I was arrested and I was charged with assault with a weapon to wit a car. Of course, when it went to court, guess what they convicted me of? Nothing. Assault with a weapon to wit a car, the only thing that I had not done. The other four or five charges I had done, which was obstructing and all the rest of it. I can't remember what the other four were, but anyway, anything that had any skerrick of truth in it, I was guilty of. But of course, assault with a weapon to wit a car was at odds with the other four. So the magistrate dismissed the four things that I had done and sustained the assault with a weapon and I got sentenced to jail which we immediately appealed, of course. Um, So when it went to the county court, I ended up with a fine and probably a bond, a good behaviour bond, I can't remember. But as a consequence of that, being a teacher and having been arrested, I got hauled before the teacher's tribunal. I was certain I was going to lose my job, so I had no qualms about that and and I got up and made a political statement about the Paper Tiger Tribunal and yeah. blah, 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 all the rest of it. Um, they, uh, and I, I looked like I was about 15. I was a <laughs> tiny, skinny little thing, even though I was 20 or 21 at the time, 20, I think. So I made this po- this bold political statement, certain that I was going to get um, sacked anyway, so I was going to go, I didn't defend myself, I just thought I'll go out with a bang. Well... They questioned me about the statement, the meaning of the words, and I answered every single one of them. And I could see their eyes widening that I knew what the word imperialism meant and I knew what this meant and I knew what that meant. And and I uh, I then got a tap on the wrist with a feather. But, but, but there was a consequence. I had to have the inspector sit in class with me for you know, weeks on end until the inspector said to me, look, I can see that you're a good teacher. I have no problems with your classroom practice. I don't think I'll have to visit you again. Students at La Trobe were involved in many other actions, aside from these three marches, of course. 
and some promised to be even more violent, as Deborah Towns recalls. One of the people told me, I can't remember her name now, unfortunately, but she was in a room with me at Lindsay's College and, as I said, it's hearsay and I can't remember now who it was who told me, but I suppose she was supposed to have a machine gun under her bed because the plan was to blow up the Honeywell building, which was, you know, providing all the computerisation to keep the war going in over against, you know, in Vietnam was... Um, and, uh, yeah, so so there were two students um, arrested over that incident. I think she was a girlfriend of one of them. So here I was in a room apparently <laughs> with a machine gun under the bed. But, I mean, it was just like that. It was sort of just, you just it was just the way it was. Now, whether or not this is actually true, it certainly speaks to the feelings of the time. Less violently, the women I spoke to recalled a lot of intense discussion on campus. Did you get involved in doing any of the backroom stuff with protesting against Vietnam or was your contribution turning up to the demonstrations? Well, I think there was more to it than turning up to the demonstrations. There were lots of sort of discussion groups and talks and things like that. It wasn't sort of done in a vacuum and and certainly I would have gone to meetings where there was planning. I wasn't wasn't vocal though because... I was too terrified at the sound of my own voice in public to speak. So I didn't. I was very chicken, actually. I wasn't brave at all. But I did go to them and I listened and I would have discussed it. There was a lot of discussion in the cafe at the Trove and and there were only a couple of places you could meet. It was very small back then. But, yeah, there was a lot of discussion and we talked about it all the time and I talked to different groups. Fiona Lindsay was heavily involved with the student newspaper Rabelais. With Rabelais, were you writing mm. articles mm. Mm. about the Vietnam War or about politics more generally? Well, or? Often, often, or sometimes it was about politics, sometimes it was book reviews. There were some people who you'd do a diary, like a regular thing. Do a regular thing. Were there lots of women involved with Rabelais? Like, did it there were, like, yes, there were. Yeah. There were, actually. Mm. The student newspaper Rabelais featured articles and letters throughout this period from students who were protesting against the Vietnam War and conscription, as well as those who were in favour of the war, primarily because of a fear or dislike of communism. I had the chance to look through pretty much every copy of Rabelais from this period, because La Trobe University archives people are fantastic. Many of the articles are unsigned, so much of what Fiona wrote, I couldn't necessarily find, or at least find her as the author. Despite her memory of many women being involved, those articles of a political nature that were signed tended to be by men, and the editorial committee was generally male-dominated. The main female-authored pieces I found were letters to the editor. For example, in 1968, a letter was sent that was signed by seven people, Latrobe students who had been involved in an act of civil disobedience in Canberra when they sat down in front of the Prime Minister's Lodge. Of those seven students, two were women, Fiona and Beryl Cusland. In 1969, Ailsa Guthrie, a first-year humanities student, wrote a detailed letter about attending a court case with about 50 other people. The case was regarding a journalist who was refusing to register for national service. 
She writes, rather acerbically, about the crowd being yelled at to be quiet when they giggled at someone charged with feeding washers into a parking meter rather than coins, and then also being yelled at to be quiet as they leave the courtroom. Her greatest snark, however, is reserved to the ABC, who, despite being present and interviewing people, didn't end up reporting on the event. She says, and I quote, "'Non-violent demonstrations, it seems, have no sex appeal.'" Another year later, in July 1970, Rabelais published an article called July the 4th, Two Views. Now, the events on July the 4th, out the front of the American consulate, are something I'll cover in detail in the episode about Monash University, as students from there are usually seen as the ringleaders. But these two views, published by Rabelais, are on the one hand from Barry York, who gets up a good head of steam about the disgraceful behaviour of the police, while on the other side is Jill Jolliffe, who is actually a Monash University student. Her article is aimed squarely at decrying York's approval of student violence. She herself was heavily involved in the protest movement, but didn't approve of this violence. Finally, also in 1970, this time back in April, Rabelais printed an open letter in anticipation of the May moratorium. This was signed by postgrads, academic staff and non-academic staff, advertising that they would not be doing anything on campus on the day of the moratorium. By my count, there are 139 names here. Now, there are very few first names, but everyone does have a title, and there are 46 with Miss or Mrs., There are also several that are given as doctor. Some of them could be female as well. So maybe just over a third of the people who signed are women. Now, I don't know what proportion of postgrads and staff were female at this time, but this still seems like a large number. And it also reflects what some of the women I interviewed said, which is that many of the staff were supportive and sympathetic of the protests. I also asked these women what they thought of the role of women in general in the protest movement. I probably would have noticed if there were fewer women. Um, I suppose on the La Trobe campus, statistically anyway, I'd say there were more women than men anyway because we're on the student ships, going to be teachers and so on. No, I I couldn't say I pictured that. I would have said it was 50-50. So all my women friends that I recall were very active like I was in demonstrations and so on. Some were more like it's a great party. I remember them calling it trucking along. Are you going to be trucking along to Burke Street? Are you going to be trucking along to the moratorium? But I was more serious. I wasn't trucking along. I wanted to have a revolution and change the world and everything. Some of them are a little bit more like that, but I would never, I couldn't possibly, no, I couldn't answer that other than I I didn't really notice that it was dominated. I was very interested in feminism and so on because Germaine Greer's book came out in the early 70s too, so I was very aware of all of that. I can't, I would say it would have been around 50-50. But the leaders, the leaders weren't women. I didn't, I don't remember, especially at La Trobe, I don't really remember any women speaking other than at a meeting. We might stand up and say something at a meeting, but we were not the speakers out at the front. My recollections of being a you know young student at La Trobe and I started in 1968, um, the boys, the boys, I mean, they really were boys, they were sort of like pop stars and the women were very much relegated to the back room. It was classic, you know, making coffees and 
this sort of thing, not all of them. Some of them were very strong and vocal, but generally speaking, even it, it was very much, you know, that they were tended to be the girlfriends of the key boys. So it was just, you know, and, and that wasn't my focus at the time, but I was aware of it, very aware of it. It was a male domain. I very rarely went into the student headquarters because I was, it was too frightening as a, a girl to go in there with all these big, intense guys and very scathing if you said something wrong. I don't remember doing that, but, you know, they, they were very scathing of each other, but particularly when they were like that to um, young women, that they, they tended to just retreat. But 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 women did still um, talk about all that stuff. Yeah, uh, it was it wasn't like they they weren't interested. We we were. Thanks for listening to this episode of Women Conscription and War. If you enjoyed it, maybe you could tell someone else about it or leave a review somewhere to help other people find it. My immense thanks to all the people I spoke to for this episode. You can find a complete list of them on my website, womenconscriptionwar.com, as well as a bibliography and some relevant images. My thanks also to Sarah Tomasetti, who gave permission to use her mother, Glenn Tomasetti's music in this project. It's a moment from her song, The Ballad of William White, that you hear between sections throughout this podcast. <laughs>